In 2019, the global retail sale of clothing and footwear was more than $1.9 trillion. The single largest market was the United States of America. And that year, U.S. citizens spent in excess of $302 billion on clothing and shoes. That averages out to $1,000 every American annually. Need I tell you that uh, women spent three times more than men on clothing and shoes. In the fashion industry, there is a motto that says, out with the old and in with the new. That's not merely a 21st century American phenomenon. In fact, Paul the Apostle was very fashion aware, especially when you come to Colossians chapter 3. Today we continue our nine-part sermon series entitled The Supremacy of Christ. I invite you to draw your sword, turn to Colossians chapter 3, stand out of reverence to the public reading of God's holy word, as today, by the Spirit's power, I want to preach a sermon that's entitled Dressed for Success. Colossians chapter 3, I'll begin reading at verse 1. Since then, you've been raised with Christ. Set your hearts on things above, where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things above, not on earthly things, for you died, and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. So put to death, therefore, whatever belongs to the earthly nature, sexual morality, impurity, lust, evil desires, and greed, which is idolatry. Because of these, the wrath of God is coming. You used to walk in these ways in the life you once lived, but now you must rid yourselves of all such things as these, anger, rage, malice, slander, and filthy language from your lips. Do not lie to each other, since you've taken off your old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge in the image of its creator." Here there is no Greek or Jew, circumcised or uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave or free, but Christ is all and is in all. Therefore, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, clothe yourselves with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, patience. Bear with each other. Forgive whatever grievances you may have against one another. Forgive as the Lord forgave you. Over all these virtues, put on love, which binds them all together in perfect unity. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, since as members of one body you are called to peace, and be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, as you teach and admonish one another with all wisdom, and as you sing psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs with gratitude in your hearts to God. And whatever you do, whether in word or deed, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. For the Christian, belief and behavior are inextricably tied together. What we say we believe ought to impact how we behave. And how we behave ought to be shaped by what we say we believe. But tragically, I think that we have compartmentalized belief and behavior. The result was reported by George Barna in his most recent survey when he said from his research only 4% of Americans today 
have a biblical worldview. What makes matters even worse is according to that same report, only 37% of Christian pastors maintain a biblical worldview. Now you may ask yourself, what is a biblical worldview? Simply stated, a biblical worldview maintains that there is absolute truth and the Bible gets to define it. So because of the, what the scripture says, there is a God. He's one true living God. All of us are sinful humanity. And the only way that anybody can be saved is through trusting and believing in the explicit faith of the work of Jesus Christ on the cross of Calvary. That we believe wholeheartedly that Jesus died for our sin, was placed in our grave, and on the third day was raised from the dead. We are not saved by our good works. We're not saved by even religion or ritual. The only way we're saved is through a relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. Because of that salvation in Christ, we view the world in certain ways. So because Jesus is truth, we long to make decisions based on that truth. So we believe from a Christian worldview that things like abortion is nothing more than murder. That there are two genders, for God made them male and female. That marriage, by God's design, is his institution given to humanity. It's the building block of every civilization. And God defines marriage as a biological man and a biological woman for life. When you and I begin to compartmentalize belief from behavior, what could result is that you could have two grown adults who claim to be Christian and they see no problem living together before they get married. Friends, we are living in some strange times. It could result in that men and women who say that they are followers of the Lord, not only do they endorse and accept, but they applaud and celebrate a homosexual lifestyle filled with activity that the Lord describes as despicable in his sight. We are living in some strange times. It could result in teenagers who know how to worship God on Sunday morning but they don't know how to get out of the back seat of the car with their boyfriend or girlfriend on Friday or Saturday night. Friends, we are living in some strange times. It could result in that people who say that they are Bible-believing Christians, yet they've come to the conclusion that abortion somehow is all about a, women, a, a woman's right to choose And it's all tied to women's health, even though the Bible is very clear that it is senseless slaughter in the sight of God. For we know and believe that life begins at conception, for we are fearfully and wonderfully made. What what could result is that you could have children that go through a church children's ministry Uh, they go to vacation bible school they accept jesus christ as savior and lord they walk through the waters of baptism and those children have no problem lying to mom and dad straight to their face when simply asked the question did you brush your teeth tonight because belief and behavior have been compartmentalized yet i'm here today to tell you that for the christian 
Belief and behavior are inextricably tied together. This is why the Apostle Paul has spent the first two chapters of the Colossian letter talking about our belief in Jesus Christ. Jesus is not only prominent, he is preeminent. He's not just sufficient, but he is sovereign. And because of our belief in Jesus Christ, it impacts how we behave. So beginning now in chapter 3, he's going to draw out some practical implications of everyday behavior based on the belief that Jesus is sufficient for our salvation. Now this pattern that the apostle uses where he first talks about belief and then draws out practical behavioral implications, that's a normal pattern for the apostle Paul. In his greatest writing, the book of Romans, it may be his great treatise, he spends the first 11 chapters talking about robust doctrine. He speaks about who God is and how he has saved us in Jesus Christ. And then you come to Romans chapter 12, in view of God's mercies, offer your body as living sacrifice unto the Lord, holy and pleasing, for this is your spiritual act of worship. Romans 12 through 16, then he draws out some behavioral implications based on the massive mercy of God demonstrated in Jesus. Christ. So our behavior is always tied and tethered to our belief in who Jesus is. Because belief and behavior are inextricably tied together. You go to a place like Ephesians, Ephesians chapters 1, 2, and 3, the apostle speaks about our belief in the sufficiency of the lordship of Jesus Christ. You get to Ephesians chapter 4, and Paul says, as a prisoner of the Lord, I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling of you have received. Ephesians chapters 4, 5, and 6, he draws out some practical behavioral implications based on the lordship of Jesus Christ in your life. The same thing is happening in Colossians. Colossians 1 and 2, he speaks about the supremacy of Jesus. He is the image of the invisible God. He is the firstborn from among the dead. Uh, he is the first fruit of resurrection. And this Jesus who is sovereign and supreme, because he has been raised from the dead, this then is how you're supposed to live. Everything about the Christian life is tied to our belief in who Jesus is. If you know who Jesus is, then you know how to behave because belief and behavior are inextricably tied together. So in our passage, he says, set your mind on things above. Set your heart on things above. Now, why do we do this? Well, since Christ has been raised from the dead, it's the promise that you will be raised from the dead. You will appear with him. Therefore, in the meantime, before he comes back to get you, in the meantime right now, set your heart, set your mind on things above. The word set is second person plural, ple present imperative. Let's break that down just for a second. Second person plural doesn't mean just you, it means y'all. He's writing to the entire church. This is something that everybody who claims to be a Christian ought to do. You ought to set your heart and mind on Christ. It's not just one person, it's many. It's second person plural. It is present, which means it's a continuous action. It's an ongoing activity. You don't just set your heart and mind one time a long, long time ago. No, you repeatedly routinely set your heart and mind upon Christ. I don't need a show of hands to give affirmation that there are times when you have ungodly thoughts and there are times 
when you have unchristlike feelings. I don't need you to raise your hand. I know that sometimes our minds get flung to the gutter. Sometimes our hearts are tugged and pulled to the culture. I know what it is. You know what it is to have ungodly thoughts. We know what it is to have unchristlike feelings. So because of that, the apostle says, you need to actively, you need to intentionally, you need to repeatedly Set your heart and mind on things above. It's present, so it's an ongoing action. It's imperative, which means it's a command. This is not a suggestion. This is not just something that Paul says, you know what, if you just want to live the best life now, this is what you probably ought to do. No, it's not a suggestion. This is a command. A command that is given to all of God's people who believe in the lordship of Jesus Christ and the sufficiency of the work of Jesus on the cross. Therefore, Y'all ought to set your heart and mind on Christ. Now, for the person who says, uh, preacher, I hear what you're saying, but I just can't help the way I think. I just can't help the way I feel. I've been thinking this way since I was a boy. I got it from my daddy. I've been feeling this way since I was a little girl. Got it from my mama. I just can't help the way I think. I can't help the way I feel. The Bible says, yes, you can. You can help the way you think, and you can help the way you feel. You can direct your thoughts. You can set your feelings. You set your heart and mind on things above. And sometimes we have to do that repeatedly, don't we? Sometimes we have to do it multiple times a day, maybe even many times within the hour. We have to repeatedly set our heart and mind on things above. Now, why do we do it? Don't forget. Why do we do it? It's not just to be a goody two-shoe. It's not just to pull ourselves up by our bootstrap. It's not just to somehow think that we're better than anybody else. No, the reason we do this is because in verse 4, Christ is our life. If Christ is our life, then we long to set our hearts and minds on things above. You know, let me ask you, what is the center of your life? For some people, the center of our lives, our career, our success. For some, the center of our lives, it's our children, it's our grandchildren. For some, the center of our lives, sports, recreation, activities. But for the Christian, what is the center of your life? It ought to be Christ. Paul says in verse 4 of our passage, That when Christ appears, Christ is our life. So because he's our life, we want to live for him. So we set our mind on things above. We set our hearts on things above. Once again, to the person who says, um, you know, I I don't really know that I I can do that. Uh, let, Let me... Let me ask you to think back over your experiences. Maybe it was when you were in high school, maybe in college, maybe sometime in the workplace. There has been somebody that's come alongside you. Maybe it was a coach, maybe it was a parent, maybe it was a teacher, and that person looked at you and said, you can do this. I believe you can do it. You set your mind to it. You can do anything you set your mind to do. Because mindset is crucial to achievement. In life, mindset is crucial to achievement. If you think you're gonna fail at something, chances are you're gonna fail at that something. If you think you just might succeed, guess what? You just might succeed because mindset is crucial to achievement. All to the person who says, pastor, you're being far too humanistic. I expect it better from you. Why are you being so humanistic telling people that they can just think how they want to think and it's up to them to set their heart and set their mind on Christ? 
Well, let me just remind you what Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 5 when he says that we take captive every thought and subject it to Christ. That word, take captive, it means to arrest. It's an interesting metaphor, isn't it? I begin to think about the police officer who has to aggressively arrest the perpetrator. I've watched the cop shows. You've watched the cop shows. You, you know how it goes down. That sometimes the police officer has to wrestle the perpetrator to the ground, cuff them and stuff them, put them in the squad car, take them to the precinct so they await the appearance before the judge. And Paul says in the very same way, when you have ungodly thoughts, when you have unchristlike feelings, you can't just allow them to sit and soak. You can't allow them just to stay there and fester. You've got to wrestle them to the ground. If it's not of God, you've got to wrestle it to the ground. You've got to evict it. You've got to cuff it and stuff it. You've got to take it before the righteous king, King Jesus. Because we take captive every thought and we subject it to Christ. Once again, why do we do this? Because Jesus Christ is our life. He's not merely our Lord, he is our life. And because he's the center of our life, we say, God, we don't want thoughts that aren't glorifying to you. We don't want feelings that contradict Christ in us, the hope of glory. So help us to set our hearts and set our minds on things above. Now, what does that look like? How do you do that? How do you set your heart and set your mind on things above? Well, in verses five to 11, Paul gives 11 fashion faux pas. These are garments of your old self. It's so out of style. It's so out of date. It is so last year. You don't want to be caught dead wearing it. Because these fashion faux pas, you've got to put them off. That's verses 5 to 11. Then verses 12 to 17, he's going to give us 11 heavenly garments to put on. These are garments that are so in style. These are garments that everybody who's everybody has them. These are garments that everybody wants. These are garments that glorify God, that help you set your mind and set your heart on things above. Don't allow it to escape your observation that Paul tells the church, here are 11 garments that you've got to put off. And here are 11 garments that you must put on. Because the grossness of your sin is perfectly covered by the grace of his salvation. Let me say that again. The grossness of your sin is perfectly covered by the grace of his salvation. So beginning in verse 5, the apostle says, put to death what belongs to the earthly nature. That earthly nature is that old self. It's the fashion faux pas. It's, it's what we need to put off and take off. We need to put it to death. That's a violent metaphor. Paul is being very assertive and aggressive. The word put to death literally is mortify. It means to kill, slay, slaughter. You've got to aggressively put to death slaughter, slay anything that's not of God. Because if you don't, then it will 
attempt to overtake your life and become a stronghold in your life. So, so you've got to mortify it by the power of Christ. You've got to slay it by the power of Christ. You've got to slaughter it by the power of Christ. You've got to kill it by permission of Christ. He gives you permission to slaughter and to slay anything that doesn't belong to him. Now quickly, I want us to walk through those 11 garments that we are to put off. And equally quickly, I want us to walk through the 11 garments that we are to put on. I want you to have an open Bible and an open mind as we take a look at these items, these garments. I'm in Colossians chapter 3, verse 5. When he speaks of putting to death, that's mortifying, slaughter, slaying, killing, whatever belongs to your earthly nature. He'll begin with four words. The first four of the 11 garments all have to do with sexual sin. That's not by accident. Sexual sin is so prominent and it's so prevalent in the first century as well as the 21st century. A lot of time has passed, but not a whole lot has changed. So Paul says, you put to death sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires. We'll stop right there. That word sexual immorality is the Greek word pornea. It's the most general term. Yes, it is the word from which we get the word pornography, but it means any type of sexual sin, any type of sexual perversion. You've got to put that off. You've got to do that intentionally. You've got to do that repeatedly. You've got to do that assertively and aggressively. So you put that off. You put it to death. Any pornea that's in your life, sexual immorality. The next word is impurity. That means moral filth. It's the image of a dirty bowl, something that is so decadent, so decayed, so filled with, with, with filth that you've got to get rid of that. You've got to put it to death. The third word is lust. This word lust describes the lust of the pagans, the lust of the Gentiles. This has nothing to do with the romantic love between a husband and a wife. This has nothing to do with the love that God has for his creation, specifically that God has for his people. That'll come later, agape love. This word for lust is elsewhere used to describe the lust of the Gentiles. It is decadent. It is vile. It is this kind of lust. Elsewhere, this same Greek word is used to describe the shameful lust of homosexuality. And Paul says, you must mortify that. You can't applaud it. You can't endorse it. You can't excuse it and accept it and worship it. No, you've got to put it to death. The fourth word he uses is evil desires. I want you to notice he does not use just the word desire, for desire is not bad in and of itself. You have a desire for food, you have desire for uh, drink, you have desire for sleep, you have desire for success, you have desire for significance. All those things are good in and of themselves. But this is evil desire. And the Bible says that evil desire is when you put yourself in the center of your desires. By you putting yourself in the center of that desire, it becomes an evil desire. Remember, what's the center of your life? Newsflash, it ain't you. The center of your life is the Lord Jesus Christ. Christ is our life. If Christ is our life, then I'm not the center of it. But whenever I put myself in the center of my desires, the Bible calls that evil desires. So you and I have to get rid of all the sexual sin of our lives. This has a lot to say about what we look at 
what we see across the screen of our iPhones, what we watch on our computer screens, what we allow into our home through our televisions, this has much to say about how we regard people, how we view them. They're not items to be objectified. They're individuals made in the image of God. Because they have the Imago Dei, because they have the image of God stamped upon them, they have worth and value, every single person. There's not a person who is useless in the sight of God. Oh, all of this has much to say about who we look at and how we look at them. So we glorify him. Anything that is not of God, any thought, any feeling that is ungodly and not Christ-like, we've got to mortify it. We've got to kill it. We've got to slaughter it. We've got to slay it. You've got to be assertive and aggressive. This is violent metaphor. He goes on and he says, also you've got to put to death greed. Greed is the word covetousness. It's to want something that doesn't belong to you. It's to want more of what you have enough of already. He says this greed unchecked leads to idolatry because if you want something so badly and you can't have it, eventually you'll worship that until you obtain it. And he says you've got to take off, put off this greed, which is idolatry. You drop down to verse 8. You must rid yourselves of all such things as these. He gives us another list of five, anger, rage, malice, slander, and filthy language from your lips. Think back to the last time that you were overtaken by anger and rage. When anger gets the best of you, it reveals the worst in you. Think about the object that you were angry towards. Maybe you just spewed verbal vomit in their direction. You were so angry. You were so full of rage. Maybe it was towards your spouse. Maybe it was towards a family member. Maybe it was towards a brother or a sister. Maybe it's towards another church member. Maybe it's towards a complete stranger that you don't even know and you may never see again. But you were overcome with anger and rage. Oh, friends, when that happens, you got to agree with me that that rage rarely, if ever, leads to righteousness. When anger gets the best of you, it reveals the worst in you. He says not only that we are to put to death the anger and the rage, but also the malice and the slander. I've got good news and i got bad news. The good news is there probably won't be many of or any of you who actually kill somebody. The odds are in your favor. I mean, you're probably not going to literally kill somebody. You may think that you wanted to. I mean, on a day like today when we recognize graduates, I mean, there's uh, more than a few moms and dads who say, I am so glad I didn't kill you. I'm so glad that I didn't kill you, son or daughter, so many years ago, because today I'm really proud of you, right? I mean, probably, chances are, odds in your favor, you'll never literally kill anybody. That's the good news. The bad news, you will slice and dice people with your words every day and twice on Sunday. We may, not, we may not literally kill somebody, but we will kill their reputation with a few poorly choiced words. We'll be guilty of malice, speaking it with ill intent and slander, saying something that probably isn't even true, but 
truth. Who cares about it? You're just mad at that person. Preacher, you don't know what they did to me. You don't know what they said about me. They got another thing coming. And whatever bad happens to them, they deserve anger, rage, malice, slander. And then he says filthy language, which it really ties into it, doesn't it? Because filthy language can be demonstrated whenever you are overcome by anger or rage or malice or slander. Filthy language, the word filthy literally means rotten. It's rotten fruit that falls from your lips. That the filthy language, it's the, it's the curse words, it's the crude joking, it's, it's the bad stuff that you say that you really shouldn't say. Yeah, that's filthy language, but... This word prompts us to evaluate all of our conversation. And are there things that tumble out of our lips that could be described as rotten fruit? It's smelly. It's nasty. It's not edible. Nobody wants that. But yet we just spew filthy language. You ever said anything and you thought to yourself, where would that come from? That doesn't sound like me. I mean, I don't normally say that. Why did I say that? Well, the Bible, once again, is pretty clear that out of the overflow of the heart you speak. So if some rotten fruit falls from your lips, it's evidence that your heart's probably not in the right place. So what's the remedy? Set your heart on things above. Set your mind on things above. Whenever we come to this list, we ought to be asking ourselves the question, would Christ be honored by this? By this activity, by this action, by this word, by this uh, attitude, by this thought. We should hear in the back of our minds what Paul poses to the Corinthians when he asks the question, would you unite Christ with a prostitute? And the answer hopefully is no. We would never want to unite Christ with a prostitute. Yet that's what we do when we fall prey. Sexual morality, impurity, lust, evil desires, greed, anger, rage, malice, slander, and filthy language from our lips. I told you there were 11 things. The 11th one comes in verse 9. The 11th fashion faux pas, do not lie to each other. Since you've taken off your old self with its practice and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge in the image of its creator. Friends, why are we not to lie? Because we follow the truth teller. Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. Because he is truth, then we want to bear witness of that truth. Do you remember the story that's told in Acts chapter 5 of Ananias and Sapphira? Uh, this uh, married couple, uh, they lied and they died. Right there. I mean, they lied and they dropped dead and they died. I've oftentimes read Acts chapter 5, and I've thought to myself, God, why don't you still do that today? I mean, somebody lies, they die. I think that would keep people from lying, don't you? I also think it would make for empty churches. There wouldn't be a whole lot of people in the pews, would there? It'd make for empty pulpits. Not a whole lot of people in the pulpit either. Sometimes it's easy to lie, isn't it? Just to tell the other person what you think they want to hear. Just to tell the other person something to avoid some trouble. It's easy to lie. But why are we not to lie? 
because our life is centered on Christ. And Jesus is the truth teller. He tells the truth. He bears witness to the truth. He is the truth. So Paul says, if you examine your wardrobe, if you look at yourself, if you look at your life, and if you see any of these 11 things, you've got to get rid of it. And not just get rid of it. You've got to mortify it. You've got to slaughter, slay it, and kill it. You've got to take it off and put it away. Because this old self is symbolic of grave clothes. And where should grave clothes stay? In the grave. You're not supposed to go back in the grave and get those garments and put them back on again. When Jesus was raised from the dead, where did he put the grave clothes? He folded them up and left them in the tomb. When he called for Lazarus to come out of the grave, what did he say? Unbind his hands and feet. Let this man loose because he was dead and now he's alive again. Take off the grave clothes, Jesus said. You're not supposed to keep wearing your old self. You're not supposed to keep wearing those old garments. You have the power of Christ inside of you. So you take off the grave clothes. The church member came up to the pastor and said, "Uh, Preacher, all this talk about sin and, and all these things, listen, that needs to be reserved for lost people. Preacher, you've got to remember that we're the church. We're saved. So we don't have the same sins as lost people have. And the preacher interrupted him and said, you're exactly right. Your sin is worse because you know better and you still do it. Christ has given us clarity, right? We are to mortify the old self. But in its place, the grossness of our sin is perfectly covered by the grace of his salvation. So what does he tell us to put on? Verse 12, therefore, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, clothe yourself. The word clothe literally is put on. Put on yourself. Compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. The very first word is compassion. It's a word that means to be tender. We're to be tender towards each other. We're to be caring towards each other. We're to be compassionate towards each other. As God has cared for us, so we are to care for others. I know a lot of Christians, and you do too. Does the first word that comes to mind when you think of some Christians, the word compassion? (laughs) No, I don't think so. I think of a lot of other words, not compassion. Yet that ought to be the first word that comes to mind when anybody thinks of you because you have put on the new self in Christ. So the word is compassion. We're to be tender. The word is kind. We are to demonstrate kindness. Kindness battles bitterness. Kindness battles harshness. There are times when we have to be direct, but we ought to be kind. It battles that harshness and that bitterness. We are to be humble. We're to be humble. Think of others before you think of yourself because you're not the center of your world. Christ is. In fact, uh, before you think of yourself, you're supposed to think of somebody else. Uh, You pretty much line up third, fourth, fifth, twelfth, twentieth down the line. Because humility is to be the garment around the Christian. Gentleness, which is the other word for meekness. Meekness is power under control. Patience, who are we patient towards? Patient towards God. Because God doesn't always act the way we want him to act when when, when we want him to do it. So we must be patient with the Lord. 
We bear with each other. What that means is we get in the foxhole with somebody. We don't pour dirt on them. We get in the foxhole with them and we burden and we, and we bear their burden. We lift them up. He also says we forgive one another. Forgive just as Christ forgave us. Oh, but preacher, you don't know what that person did to me. You don't know what they said about me. I don't know if I could ever forgive them. Oh, friend, I'm so glad that God doesn't treat you the way you're treating your family member, your friend, your coworker, because God forgave you perfectly in Christ. And so we are to forgive others. In verse 14, over all these you put on love. This is the word agape. It's God's love. It's unconditional. It's unmerited. It's unending. In verse 15, let the peace of Christ rule your heart. This peace of Christ, this peace from Christ, it rules your decisions. The word rule, it means to umpire or to preside over. What does an umpire do? An umpire tells you what's in bounds and out of bounds. What's appropriate and what's inappropriate. So does the peace of Christ. I've heard people tell me, uh, Pastor, I really have a peace about this decision I have to make. And I'll say, well, how do you know that it's what God wants you to do? Well, I really feel good about it. I mean, I really feel good. I feel good. I got a good feeling in the pit of my stomach. And I haven't lost any sleep over it. And because I feel good about it, and because I haven't lost any sleep over it, it's clearly this must be the peace of Christ which guards my heart. Can I just remind you uh, that Jonah had a pretty good feeling in the pit of his stomach, and he was asleep in the bottom of the boat when he was going in the opposite direction towards Tarshish, away from Nineveh, in the midst of the God-sent storm. So just because you have a good feeling, and just because you can get some sleep and not lose any sleep over it. That's no guarantee that the peace of Christ is ruling your heart and your mind. So here, it's, we're asking God, God, will you please guard me? Will you please guide me? Will you give me the peace that passes all understanding? Will you help me to follow you wholeheartedly and keep me in bounds by your peace? Ultimately, he says in verse 16, Clothe yourself with the word of Christ. May the word of Christ dwell in you richly. The word of Christ. You will never outgrow your need for the scripture. You will never outgrow your need for the word of God or the God of the word. Clothe yourselves with the scripture. Sometimes it's just a scrap of scripture that can help you in a tight spot in the moment of the day. Clothe yourself with scripture. People who don't live by the word don't read the word. People who don't live by the book don't read the book. If you read the book, it just might read you. And if the book reads you, then you just might know how to live because belief and behavior are inextricably tied together. So clothe yourself with the word of God. And last but not least, Paul says in the final verse, whatever you do, whether in word or deed, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. You are to clothe yourself with thankfulness. Why? Because of who Jesus is and what he's done. Every Christian I meet ought to be a thankful Christian. And Paul says, whatever you do, in word or deed, demonstrate that thankfulness unto the Lord. So whether you're singing or whether you're shopping, whether you're exercising or whether you're working, whether you're swinging a hammer or swinging a baseball bat, whether you're making a deal or making a meal, whether you are raising a family or getting ready for retirement, whether you're speaking to a friend or speaking to a foe, whether you're addressing a stranger or somebody you've known all your life, whether you're saying the gospel or tying your tennis shoes, whatever you do in word or deed, do it all with a thankful heart because everything about your life is tied and tethered to who Jesus is 
for Jesus is our life. And because of that, we know that what we believe about Jesus impacts how we behave in a watching world. I wonder today, is there anybody who has to say, preacher, there are some things I need to put off and other things I need to put on. I don't think when it comes to that first list of 11, I don't think that every person struggles with every one of those garments. But I think that every person struggles with at least one of those garments. So what's the one that you struggle with? Maybe it's more than one. Today, put it off. And in its place, put on the garments of Christ. Maybe you need to take off rage and malice. Maybe take off sexual immorality. Maybe take off greed. Maybe you need to put on the peace of Christ. Put on the word of Christ. Put on a thankful disposition. Maybe you just need to put on the love, the agape love of God Almighty. Whatever it is, there's some people who need to put some things off and put some other things on. So the altar is a changing room today. Think of it as a changing room. There's nothing vulgar, nothing vile about it. It's very private, very personal. It's as if you've come into a changing room. And by the Spirit's power, God tells you, you know, there's some things you need to put off today. Just put them off and leave them here, right here at the altar. And in its place, the Lord says, I want you to put on some other things. And those other things that you put on will help you combat those things you just put off. And when you leave the changing room, don't reach back for the dirty old clothes. Leave them there. We'll take care of it. We'll clean it up. You just leave it there. Leave the dirty junk. Put off some things and put on some other things so that you can be dressed for success in the kingdom of God. The purpose of the church is not just to fill your mind with information. It's not even to fill your heart with inspiration. No, our purpose is to lead you to glorious transformation by the power of Christ. Our purpose is to point sinners to Jesus. Our purpose is to point the saved to Jesus. The reason we exist, the reason we're here at First Baptist Pound, the reason we are here today is because we need Jesus. Whether, whether you're identified as lost or whether you're identified as saved we're all in need of this Jesus of Colossians chapters 1 and 2 and if we embrace this Jesus of Colossians 1 and 2 and we trust him and his work then he will lead us into right behavior because the grossness of our sin is perfectly covered by the grace of his salvation it's all about his amazing grace is it not so I'll leave you with this Amazing grace, how sweet the sound. It saved a filthy wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found. I was blind as a bat, and now I see. Through many dangers, toils, and snares, I have already come. Grace has brought me safe thus far, and grace will lead me home. And you know, when we've been there 10,000 years, bright shining as the sun, we'll have no less days to sing his praise than when we first begun. So whether you call yourself a sinner, whether you call yourself a saint, today I call you to Christ. Put off the old self. Put on the new self in Jesus Christ and walk out of here dressed for success in the kingdom of God. Heavenly Father, we bow before you. 
Lord, we give you this invitation. On this day, we call the altar a changing room, and there may be more than a few people who need to come and say, by your Spirit's power, I need to put off some things that have reared its ugly head in my life. And today I need to put on some other things that belong to you. So Lord, help us today. There may be somebody here who needs to trust you as Savior and Lord. May that person have the strength to walk down, take one of the ministers by the hand and say, I need Jesus to clothe me in his righteousness. Oh, Father, there may be some who need to join the church today. There may be some who are being called into missions or evangelism. Father, whatever it may be, I pray that you'll help us to respond in perfect obedience to you. We ask this in Jesus' name, amen.